Good morning. Please find Romans chapter 5 in your Bibles. Romans chapter 5. It's said that the only sure things in life are death and taxes. Some of you are probably working on your taxes. But there's a lot of things in life where we become convinced of something that either isn't true or isn't guaranteed. And there's not much guaranteed humanly in this life. There are broken promises and broken contracts and broken trust. And this is why it is so awesome that God's promises in Christ are 100% authoritative and true and guaranteed. Our focus today is in Romans 5 verses 9 through 11, how believers in Christ have absolute assurance of salvation which gives us another opportunity to rejoice in Christ. So I want to ask you to stand if you're able. I'm going to read, as I have the last four weeks, Romans 5, 1 through 11. And I'm going to pray. My prayer, by the way, is that, that any worry, any anxiety, any fear, any confusion that you are facing in your life today would flee at the name of Jesus and the authority of his word. Romans 5, beginning at verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Lord, I pray that you would give us a timely word that is needed now. I pray, Lord, that you would use me to display the glory of your word, the gospel truth of Christ with grace and humble boldness, all for your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So we are going through this. You know, if you're new to grace, we've been going verse by verse by verse through Romans for quite a while here now, but over these last five weeks, we've looked at verses 1 through 11 of chapter 5. So it's this parenthesis, really, where Paul is pausing to celebrate salvation benefits. And he uses we and us a lot right before he dives down deep again on justification. It is very personal. It is, it is very encouraging and 
it's, it's kind of amazing that we get to rejoice in these things we see. We, we get to rejoice that we have peace with God, and it's eternal. It is lasting forever. It's not just, you know, temporary. It is, it is real. It is eternal. It is forever. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We get to rejoice that we have access to God's grace right now in the present. We get to rejoice that we have hope of the glory of God in the future. We also get to rejoice in our sufferings. It's such a huge part of our lives, right? I love how Romans 8 verse 18 says that our sufferings, the sufferings of this present time, are not worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed to us. Our sufferings, rejoicing in our sufferings. But we also saw last week that the love of Jesus in going to the cross is something we rejoice in. The love of God demonstrated in the merciful and timely and gruesome and substitutionary death of Christ is something we rejoice in as believers. And then today, in in verses 9 through 11, we see that we get to rejoice as believers in the absolute assurance of salvation. The absolute assurance of salvation. Now, some of you you know, could say, well, you know, I, I've been a believer in Jesus for a long time, but I just, I don't feel the assurance. In fact, I don't even know if I'm really going to heaven. I don't know if I'm going to make it. This is for you. And let's say you've you been a believer for a long time. You're like, I am absolutely sure that I am saved. This is for you too. And if you're not a believer, you're going to hear the gospel. You're going to hear that Jesus Christ died on the cross and took all the wrath of God upon himself and was buried and was raised on the third day and now is seated at the right hand of the throne of God interceding for those who believe in him. And he is coming back. He is coming back with blessing for believers and and with judgment on unbelievers. And so if you're not a believer today, we love you, we're glad you're here, we are not going to fool you. We're going to tell you the truth. It's the best thing for you. Here's what happens in this passage. God is impressing some gospel truths upon our hearts. And he makes three bold statements summarizing salvation. And it's comforting. It's reassuring. It's like getting a letter from a really good friend when you're going through a really tough time. So I want you to be encouraged today and also challenged to live in Christ's strength and for his glory. And I want you to see, first, the, the, the fact that there, the bold statement that first shows up in verse 9 is, is something that, that we ought to cling to every day of our life. Here's the bold statement, the first bold statement. Since we have been declared innocent, we will escape end times wrath. Since we have been declared innocent, we will escape end times wrath. Now, most of us don't think about end times wrath very often on a daily basis. You're thinking about paying the bills, and you're thinking about getting along with your family and your friends, and you're thinking about, you know, mowing your lawn and and brushing your teeth and things like this. 
But Paul is beginning to draw a conclusion here. He begins verse 9 with therefore, since therefore. Because of the fact that Jesus died for sinners in their place, he is, what he's doing is giving two arguments from the greater to the lesser. Like if this great thing happened, well, of course this is going to happen. And then he gives one beautifully appropriate response. So in these three bold statements, you see two arguments from the greater to the lesser and one beautifully appropriate response. This first bold statement, though, since we have been declared innocent, we will escape end times wrath. Verse 9 says, since therefore we have been justified by his blood. Through the gruesome substitutionary death of Christ on the cross in our place, since we have been justified by his blood. Okay, it's, it's a fact that happened in the past that it's this one-time declaration of God. It's like the judge, this is a judicial thing, the judge of all. God himself has pronounced you in Christ not guilty. Not guilty. Why? Jesus' blood paid for your sins. That's why. And the judge has ruled. He's made his ruling There is no need to fear his anger. There's no need to wonder, will he reverse his verdict on me? You have received a full pardon. Sometimes people take issues with pardons, right? A president pardons someone and you're like, they didn't deserve it. That's the point of a pardon. You received a full pardon. And you were justified. That's in the aorist tense. It just means it's already been accomplished. It's not some process that you're going to go through like if you're good enough, you might make it. You have been justified. It was done. It's been accomplished. We've been declared innocent and we are going to escape end times wrath. And and why is this salvation assured? It's because of the love of God. There's no other assurance but in God. In verse 5, in this chapter, we read that God's love has flooded our hearts. Just flooded our hearts. Given us assurance of his love. In verse 8, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You've got the experience of the love of God in your heart through the Holy Spirit that is indwelling you. And you have the objective cross to look at and go, wow, Christ died for me. So I believe I'm going to heaven. I believe that. I have assurance of ultimate salvation. I'm not going to put any confidence in the flesh. Nothing I could do. Because I believe in the merciful, gracious love of God, the eternal love of God that will not let me go. Have you thought about that? God will not let you go? Jesus said in John 10, he said, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And uh, I and the Father are one. And the Father gave me the sheep and I laid down my life for the sheep and and no one can snatch them out of the Father's hand? Uh, you, You can't get stolen out of Jesus. You can't get stolen from Jesus. He's not gonna let you go. So it says in verse nine that we shall be saved. That's future tense. That is future tense. You know, people walk around and say, I just got saved. You know, let's say today, you're like, you're not a believer, and you walk in, and you go, I believe in Jesus. And you're like, you walk out, and you're like, I just got saved, right? This is in the, in, the, in the future tense. So because you were justified in the past, and God declared you not guilty, 
you will, you will escape end times wrath because you're going to be saved in the future. That might be hard for us to understand. So it's like this. If you've been justified, how much more will you be saved from God's wrath through Christ? You're going to get all the way to the end and be saved from the wrath of God on the day of judgment. In the future tense, we're going to be saved by him from the wrath of God. Paul is focusing on justification, but also on glorification. On the past, but also on the future. The assurance. We've already been saved from God's condemnation because we're justified. So we're definitely going to be saved from his wrath on the final day. Here's why. Christ bore all the fury that your sins deserved, all the fury of God's wrath in your place if you're a believer. So there's no more wrath to put on you. He took it all. Now, if you're not a believer, the wrath remains on you. So if God did this amazing thing in justifying us by his blood while we were sinners, well, he's absolutely going to save us from his end times wrath. What this means for you is that as a believer, you're going to be preserved. You're going to be protected. You're going to escape God's wrath. God has removed the biggest obstacle God has taken the biggest thing out of the way from you to you reaching glory in the future. It was your guilt in sin. And he's taken that out of the way, and so you're going to be spared the wrath. He took all the wrath. That he's justified you, and the judge is not going to accuse you. This is guaranteed. You, will, you are guaranteed to escape condemnation. Romans 8.1 says... There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know the feeling when you are driving down the road and you're going too fast, you're speeding, let's say, and all of a sudden, as you're driving down the road, you see a policeman on the side of the road with a radar gun trained at you. You know the feeling, right? You're like, oh my goodness, I'm getting a ticket. You might not have felt this way, but I've felt this way a couple times. You know the feeling when you're going past the policeman and they're sitting on the side of the road and, and you know you're speeding and as soon as you pass him, he merges into traffic, turns on the lights. And he doesn't come after you. And, and at that moment, you're like, I'm never going to speed again. I'm going to drive so well for the rest of my life, right? Come on. You know how it goes. Getting out of trouble or not getting in trouble is such a relief, is it not? But it's nothing compared to escaping hell. What you have in Christ is a full pardon and a clean record. And so this bold statement sticks. Since we've been declared innocent in Christ, we're going to escape end times wrath. You're like, you're getting a little worked up over this. Wouldn't you? Shouldn't you? Oh my goodness. And now, let's move to verse 10. Another bold statement. Bold statement number two. And now he's switching metaphors from you know, the judicial, the courtroom, to the relational. Okay? Bold statement number two. Since we are now God's friends, 
Christ will ultimately save us. Since we are now God's friends, Christ will ultimately save us. Verse 10 says it this way. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more. Like if that happened, well, of course, this is going to happen. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? We were enemies. You know, you might have some enemies in your life. I don't know. You can go online and find 15 ways to become friends with an enemy. It's like, that's going to take a long time. Can't there just be one way? 15 steps to becoming friends with your enemies. You might have frenemies. You know? You know what frenemies are, right? It's that person with whom you are friendly, but you don't trust them. You don't know if they're really your friend. There's this fundamental distrust, dislike, rivalry, whatever you want to call it. Your frenemy. Not really a lot of confidence in that. Some people will say this. Someone said this about friends and enemies. Well, they said, look, you know, you're always going to forgive your friends, right? Because you love them, right? And then he said, you should always forgive your enemies because nothing annoys them as much as that. Someone else said, never interrupt your enemy when he's making a mistake. Just let him walk in it, right? And I love this one. Someone said, do I not destroy my enemies when I make them my friends? We were God's enemies. We hated God. We were under his wrath. We refused to worship him, and we turned to false gods. Romans 1 told us all about that. So did Romans 3. We were actively opposed to God. We were his enemies you notice this verse says while we were his enemies and so then here's how it went through no work of your own you were reconciled to god by the death of his son now think about people that you probably need to reconcile with or you have reconciled with in the past you got two people they're at odds right and for them to be reconciled they both both must admit you know i've had some selfish pride okay and they both must say, I'm going to let it go. I'm going to let some things go. That maybe you did or you said. And they both admit they're at fault. And they both must forgive. They both must relearn trust, right? And so you, you approach someone and, and you want to reconcile. And if you're willing, if both parties are willing, it happens. And isn't it a great thing when you go, wow, we're, we're friends again. But our reconciliation with God came about very differently, very much differently. Not through us yielding, not through God doing the yielding, but dying. Death and dying. So through faith in Christ's sacrifice, you're no longer God's enemy. Now you're God's friend. Well, if you're God's friend, that changes the way you think, that changes the way you live, right? why we call it good friday god makes us willing all the work of god you think about it when two people reconcile let's say a husband and a wife reconcile or a parent and a child reconcile or friends reconcile you always wonder is the peace going to last are the insults going to be remembered are the old surfaces old issues going to resurface are they going to 
crop up again, and, and then you go, you know, we got to rebuild trust here. Reconciliation with God is so different. It gives you assurance of salvation and peace that never ends. If you don't trust Christ, you don't have this assurance. You have fear of wrath. But just think about reconciliation. It means to change. It means to exchange something. And so it involves a change in relationship between God and you, or let's say you and another person. There's been a breakdown in the relationship. But now there's been a change from a state of hostility to one of friendship. This passage has told us previously that we were powerless, we were ungodly, we were sinners, we were enemies, we were under God's wrath. But now because God has reconciled us, we are now what? New creatures in Christ. This is what 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us, right? If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creature. And 2 Corinthians 5.18 says all this is done by God. All the reconciling was done by God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. That's what happened. You didn't wake up one day and say, you know, God and me are on bad terms. I'm going to reconcile with God. You didn't do that. Absolute assurance is a gift from God. We don't get reconciled to God because we decided to do so. God took the initiative in sending his son to reconcile you to him, and reconciliation, as this verse tells us, has been accomplished. We are reconciled, done through the death of his son. God is graciously giving us that gift. When you think about reconciliation, it means to make peace with. We're told to do this you know, with people, right? Matthew 5, 24, if you know your brother has something against you and you're trying to worship, you go at once and be reconciled with your brother you know, you, to settle the dispute, come to an agreement, come to terms. You, you cause peace to happen and reconciliation to happen between people. And this is what God did. God made things right between himself and us through Christ and his death on the cross. Colossians 1.20 says, Jesus made peace through the blood of his cross. We didn't make the peace. This was while we were still enemies. We weren't coming towards God. Someone who restores peace between people is called a peacemaker. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, Matthew 5, 9. Jesus is the one who acted as mediator, the one who reconciles. 1 Timothy 2, 5 says, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus the one who stands in the middle, the one who speaks to both parties, the one who causes the argument to cease. You think about it. If you've got an enemy, you're always on your guard around them. You don't really want to see them. You're mistrusting of them. You're wary of them. You plan how you're going to respond to them. But when you're friends, you trust their word. You can't wait to see each other. You look forward to spending time with each other. And so this is a gift that God has given us to make his enemies his friends. And if God reconciled us while we were enemies, the harder thing to do, then we shall be saved by Christ's life. We're reconciled by his death. Again, that's already accomplished. It's the aorist tense. It's already accomplished. It already happened. We're reconciled. But we shall be saved by his life. 
That again is in the future tense. John, John Stott said this. He said, the risen life of Christ is going to complete in heaven what the death of Christ began on earth. The risen life of Christ is going to complete in heaven what the death of Christ began on earth. This gives you assurance, absolute assurance, that you, at the, at the end of, of time, will be saved. That, your, that his life, that Christ's resurrection life, will be what saves you from end times wrath. What is Jesus doing right now? Do you know what Jesus is doing right now? Right now, the Bible tells us that Jesus is interceding for us, praying for us, going to the Father on our behalf in the present. Christ's death and resurrection combined to bring salvation. Romans 4.25 said he was delivered for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So when we were God's enemies, Christ by his death reconciled us to God. And now that we are God's friends, now that we are God's children, the Savior is keeping us by his living power. We are friends of God. We are not enemies of God. We are safe and secure. We are confident that this relationship will never end. You have some relationships where you're like, you know, it got broken and it's over. This relationship will never end. Romans 8.34 says Christ died, he was raised, and now he sits at the right hand of God and makes intercession for us. What is he doing? He is sanctifying us, he is protecting us, he is perfecting us, he is, he is protecting and perfecting and sanctifying what his death accomplished. Focuses on what we were, focuses on what we are. We were enemies, now we are God's friends. If God reconciled his enemies and made them friends, he's going to save his friends. We're going to inherit salvation. We won't fall by the wayside. We will preserve, be preserved to the end and glorified. And it isn't just us trying to sound optimistic. I hope this happens. You know, we talk about, I hope this happens, but it might not. That's not hope. This is, I know it for sure, and it's grounded on authoritative truth. This is what the word of God says. If God can do the harder thing of giving his son to die for his enemies, now that we're friends, we're going to be saved. But there's more to the Christian life than that. It isn't just about looking to the past and remembering what was declared about us in justification. And it isn't just about looking to the future and thinking about what's going to happen in glorification. You've got a life to live today. You've got to figure out the rest of this deal, right? So that's why we, we have to get to this third bold statement. First bold statement was that since we've been declared innocent, we, we will escape end times wrath. Second bold statement, since we are now God's friends, Christ will ultimately save us. But the third bold statement, verse 11, shows us it's our beautifully, wonderful, appropriate response is to rejoice in God. Our beautifully, appropriate response is to rejoice in God. Verse 11 says, more than that, 
we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is telling us that not, not just do we rejoice in our salvation, we rejoice in the one who gave it to us even more. We don't just rejoice that we have assurance, we rejoice in the God who gives us the assurance. That's the highest rejoicing. We rejoice in God. It's this crazy, amazing mercy of God that takes brutal enemies and makes them into beautiful friends. When you rejoice in God, something happens in your soul. You're rejoicing in God, and it is through Jesus Christ. Have you noticed what that, word, what that verse says? Look at that, look at that verse. We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is through Christ that everything good in verses 1 through 11 happens, makes possible. We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ who has provided every blessing. We have confidence. You can have confidence that the worst problem in your life will be turned to work for good. You can rejoice in God through Jesus Christ in the midst of your sufferings. And boy, do we suffer. Jesus is central in Romans 5, 1 through 11. We have peace obtained through Jesus Christ, verse 1. We have access to grace through Jesus Christ, verse 2. We have Jesus dying for ungodly sinners, verses 6 through 8. We are justified by his blood, verse 9. Reconciled through his death, verse 10. Rescued from future judgment through Christ, verse 9. Saved by his life, verse 10. And so we have this hope-filled rejoicing. You're just full of hope. You, you can rejoice through Christ in the middle of a battle, in the middle of a storm. We worship Jesus as Lord, as Philippians 2.11 says, to the glory of God the Father. God is glorified as his people joyfully praise him. We praise him because we have received this reconciliation. The end of verse 11 says, through whom, through Christ, we have now received reconciliation. Wow, Jesus gives assurance of salvation. It says it right here. How do you know you're going to be saved from the wrath of God? How do you know you're going to make it to heaven? Because God says so in his word, and it's authoritative. His, his authoritative guarantee leads to absolute assurance of salvation. That's comforting, but it's also painful. I'm going to give you two applications here, one comforting, one painful. Because God's absolute assurance of salvation in Christ inspires both joyful confidence as well as humble obedience in Christ. Let's look at the comforting one first, shall we? First one, comforting application. that joy, You have joyful confidence in Christ. That absolute assurance in Christ is something that God wants you to to think about, to remember, to rehearse in your mind, to, to dwell on, to rejoice in repeatedly. That you will make it, that you will get there, that nothing can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, that nothing compares to what is to come. 
Paul says in Colossians 2.2 that he wants them to reach all the riches of full assurance. I love that. There are riches of full assurance. When you are assured in Christ, there are, it's rich. It's bountiful. Hebrews 6.11 says that we would have full assurance. Hebrews 10.22 says that we would have a true heart in full assurance. This is possible. God wants this to happen in your life. That he wants you to know that you have absolute assurance even if you don't always feel it. You know how we get tossed to and fro by the way we feel? You go through suffering and your mind starts playing tricks on you and you're like, oh no, where did the compass go? You know, I'm, 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 I'm out of sorts. I can't figure this out. How do you act when you're sure of something? You are joyful, you are confident, you are free. But what about if you're discouraged and unsure and insecure and bound up in fear and anxiety? This is why God continually in the word reassures us often and why the spirit reminds us of what we read in the word often because we leak, we forget, we get diverted, we get discouraged, we get disoriented and Things in life conspire and converge and things close in and our souls get downcast and our souls get distracted and we find ourselves not thinking about the eternal truths that should, that should focus our life. It should drive our existence. We get so focused on the here and now. We get so focused on life under the sun. Don't we start spinning our wheels and we're like, no traction. We need to celebrate salvation truth. You need your soul steadied upon the rock of Christ and scripture. Do you doubt your salvation? Do you doubt it? Do you not know if you're gonna get to heaven or not? You need to know if you're a Christian that salvation is complete in Christ. Romans 8.30 says, those whom he justified, he also glorified. Already happened. Oh, wait, I'm not there yet. I'm not in the glorification yet. I'm not at the end of the time. I'm not at the judgment day yet. It's worded as if it's already happened. He glorified you. It's as good as done. If your problem is doubt, you need to know that God loves you. You need to know that the cross proves God's love and you do it. look at the cross and accept it as God's proof that he loves you. And then you need to ask God to keep flooding your soul with his love through the indwelling spirit and ask him to chase away the doubt and the fear. And base your salvation on the objective, authoritative word of God. It doesn't change. Your feelings change. Things people tell you will change. People will tell you this isn't true. 1 John 5.11 says this. This is the testimony. He's writing to Christians, and he says, this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son, and he who has the Son has the life. And he who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. And then these words. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know 
that you have eternal life. He's writing to Christians. And he's saying, I write these things to you who believe in the, in the name of the Son of God so that you would have absolute assurance, so that you would know that you have eternal life. Praise God. What a comforting truth. Secondly, let's go to the painful app. Your absolute assurance in Christ is going to lead you to have humble obedience in Christ. It's going to lead you to transformed relationships or you haven't been changed. Because your sin affects you. Let's just say like this. Let's just say you say, I am convinced I'm saved. But there are relationships that I will not deal with. I won't forgive. I won't reconcile with someone. I'm bitter. I'm angry. You need to make sure you don't have false assurance of salvation. Because if you're saved and you know how much you've been forgiven, you're going to forgive other people. You're going to be able to get there by the indwelling spirit, obeying the objective word. And I just want to tell you, as we go, as we preach expositionally, as I preach expositionally, it's very easy for us, even for me, to go, wow, these three verses are so amazing. And, and you forget that they're part of a larger context of the 11 verses, and of the whole chapter 5, and of the whole book of Romans, and of the whole New Testament, and of the whole Bible. And I just want to remind you something. This book of Romans, this letter to the Romans, was meant to be read aloud to the church. You get it all in one sitting. And so, you're listening to Romans 5, and it talks about this reconciliation we have. And not 15 to 20 minutes later, you get to Romans 12. Romans 12 is not that far away from Romans 5. And you go over there, and you read these words. You hear these words. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You're like, oh, so the reconciliation, the absolute assurance of salvation, actually changes my life. Go figure. Hmm. And then you keep reading in Romans 12, and you're like, ooh, this is painful. Verse 9, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. And then your eyes go down to verse 18. And you start shaking in your boots. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Oh, and right before that it says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Oh, and verse 19 says, beloved, never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God. Hmm. So we, we now rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. Do you notice that it, it says, Lord Jesus Christ? So if you're unwilling to reconcile, it doesn't fit. And if you're irreconcilable, if you're unwilling to be at peace, if you're a slanderer, Galatians 5.14 says, love one another. 
Galatians 5.15 says, If you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. And so you say, well, hey, hey, wait a minute, wait, 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 time out. God loves me. Jesus died for me. He proves his love for me. I experience his love through the gift of the Holy Spirit. He proves his love at the cross. He pours his love into my heart. That's how I know God loves me. The Spirit floods my heart with that experience of God's love. Well, you must show that love or die. 1 John 3.18 says this, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. By this we will know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whatever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. We know from 2 Corinthians 5 that God has given us a ministry of reconciliation. That is evangelism, helping Others come to know Christ, and we appeal to be reconciled to God. We tell, we, it says it in the verses. We, we appeal to you, be reconciled to God. But that evangelism is either helped by our good relationships or hindered by our bad ones. Because Jesus said in John chapter 13, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, and by this all people will know if you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. And so the question before us goes, do we want peace? Or a pound of flesh? Do we want to please God or puff ourselves up? Is our motive to glorify God or to discredit other people? Now, I want to give you some good news. Some of you are like, well, you're pounding this one. I don't know of anything that I should correct you on in this context. As far as I know, you are totally obeying God. You are totally at peace with everyone. But water runs downhill, and so does trouble takes the path of least resistance. Do you listen to gossip? Do you slander? Do you build a case against others? Do you fight with all your might to justify yourself? That's not the way of Jesus. I just want to follow Jesus. Do you threaten people? Do you harass people? Do you extend the olive branch and send out the dove, or do you, do you uh, resist? Don't believe the lie that says there's some other way of Jesus that doesn't involve dying to yourself denying yourself you were reconciled to god by the death of his son the shed blood of christ are you unwilling to reconcile with a brother or sister who has harmed you or supposedly harmed you aren't we twisted aren't we twisted how soon we forget that forgiveness flows unbounded in unlimited supply to us in christ how quick we are to do the math against other people and Jesus compassionately just says, you know, 70 times 7, and keep it rolling. You have been forgiven inf infinite crimes against an infinite God. Your finite mind can't even comprehend. And you hold others to lesser offenses. You, you consign them to the barracks until they pay off the last cent. And what does the Spirit do? The Spirit that was given to us grieves quenched by unquenchable thirst for revenge rather than humbly seeking repentance and reconciliation. And only Jesus can sort out this mess. We are told in the Bible often to rejoice. And I've been studying this recently. You know what I found? That when we are instructed to rejoice, it's always in the context of trouble. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 13, 
and, and speaking of painful, you know, we share in the sufferings of Christ. That means painfully crucifying your fleshly desires. It says this, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. And then it says, finally, brothers, rejoice. You're like, yeah, I get to rejoice. It says this in the context of rejoicing. You're rejoicing in Christ. You're rejoicing in your salvation. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. The rally cry of the true true church is Jesus is Lord. Where you want to keep obeying God. You want to honor him. You want to keep short accounts with people. Jesus said, forgive as you've been forgiven. And, And if you're really forgiven, you'll forgive. And if you love Jesus, you'll do what he says to do. And you love one another. You forgive your enemies. You go the extra mile. You take the high road. He did. He went to the cross. And so you can go and make things right with anyone. All because of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your bold statements. Thank you for salvation. Thank you that we have been declared innocent and we will escape end times wrath. Thank you that we are now your friends and Christ will ultimately save us. And thank you, Lord, that our beautifully appropriate response is to rejoice in you, which is evidenced by obedient living in Christ's strength and for his glory. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.